Certified, the autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com. Chapter 5. Prison at night once again brought with it the ritual of the tent of filth covering the nearby bed. I found it hard to sleep with regular interruptions of sounds that would stir my fears. I didn't wish to become a victim of, of some sort of weird prison behaviour. Prison was different from anything I'd ever known. I kept trying in vain to reassure myself that I could survive prison, just as I had survived Sebastec. But this place was different, filled with frightening people, hardened men who had killed people, sexual predators who abused people, and armed guards who seemed to be just looking for an excuse to cause pain. There was an intensity in prison which lodged on the inside of me. After a few days in remand, I was surprised by the sudden break in the monotony as I heard my name being called over the loudspeaker to come to the guardroom. I had no idea why I was being summoned. The feeling of ignorance was bewildering. Entering the room, the guard informed me with a sneer that I was to be released on bail. I felt my shoulders immediately relax as anxiety lifted. It is impossible to express the instant relief and joy that stunning surprise brought me. At the time, I was given no explanation of how I came to be bailed out. But on my release, I discovered that Mum had hired a lawyer who appealed the bail decision. I had not even been present for the bail hearing, but the judge set the bail at $20,000 with tight reporting conditions. That was a lot of money. Mum was waiting outside to take me home. It was made very clear to me that the bail money was a mortgage on Nana's house. It was high motivation to keep the reporting conditions. Nan's actions reinforced the love she and Mum had for me. That love and value that they placed on me made me determined not to mess up. I was very grateful to Nana, as I knew she didn't have to do what she did, but was so glad she did. Those days in prison were the scariest experience I'd ever had. My desperation to avoid going back there strengthened my resolve to stay out of trouble and keep to the bail conditions. I hoped the magistrate would be able to see the effort I had made and give me a bond or some other non-custodial sentence when the case came to trial. Part of going straight was getting some sort of job, so I rolled up my sleeves and put in the effort to look for work. My whole family was relieved when I started working at Arnott's Biscuits, stacking cartons onto pallets at the end of the production line. It wasn't a great job, but it gave life some discipline and routine and kept me off the streets. I became good mates with a hard-working guy at the factory. Luke and his girlfriend Jenna added extra stability to my world. Jenna introduced me to a younger sister, Karen, who caught my eye. It was only a few weeks before she became my girlfriend. I was quickly falling in love with her. This new feeling of love was something I really enjoyed. In keeping with the bail conditions, I religiously reported to the police and hoped things would turn out okay. When the case came before the courts, I pleaded guilty and did my best to once again show sorrow and determination to be a good citizen. The magistrate believed me, and I was given a two-year probation. Life looked bright. There was a feeling of victory that I had escaped prison again. And there were two major achievements. I had secured a job and found a wonderful woman who was now my girlfriend. It was not long before we decided that I should move out of home and to live at Karen's place. Sleeping at her parents' place on the couch, things seemed to be going okay. I liked work, and my manager seemed to like me. I stayed away from drugs and kept the drinking to the weekends. I dared to believe that I could actually make something out of my life. More than anything else, I wanted to stay out of jail. 
I've found relationships can be tricky things to negotiate. My relationship with Karen was full of ups and downs. It was very frustrating to find myself fighting with the girl I loved. The fights continued and eventually we decided it would be better if I moved out of Karen's home and moved in with my sister Carolyn. This seemed to be a good move for all. That was until I was introduced to a guy simply called The Wog who was tangled up with one of the outlaw bikey gangs in Ballarat. He had a regular supply of high quality speed and he generously offered me a free hit. Just see if you like it, The Wog appealed to me. I had never used speed before but friends had spoken of an unbelievable rush. I was actually pretty keen to try it out. I liked living on the edge. The promised rush sounded exciting. I was eager to justify the possibility of a trial taste, trying to reassure myself with the thought, what harm could one hit do? I accepted the speed. Snorting speed was a sensation like none other. I just closed my eyes and allowed the wave of energy and happiness to wash over my anxiety and underlying stress. I was suddenly faced with the most wonderful feeling I could imagine. My desire was for more, but the next hit I had to pay for. After snorting speed a few times, the wog suggested I stop wasting good speed up my nose and shoot it straight into my bloodstream. I was given a lesson on how to dissolve the speed in water heated in a teaspoon and then how to draw it into a needle through the cigarette filter. The wog showed me how to constrict my arm with a tourniquet and inject the solution into my vein. If snorting speed produced a wave of happiness, mainlining it produced an enormous rush of euphoria. I suddenly had seemingly boundless energy and optimism. It was like I was finally, truly happy, at least for as long as the hit lasted. Speed was different from the alcohol and cannabis I'd used before. Rather than being relaxed, speed induced an electrifying rush, heightening the senses. On speed, I could go for days and days without sleep. I'd invited this intoxicating drug into my life and I liked what it gave me. At first, I started using speed every weekend, but after regular use, it became hard to sleep, hard to concentrate, and impossible to think straight. The sleep deprivation made me cranky, and I found myself using more and more just to function. I tried to ignore the fact that life was starting to spiral downwards once again. It seemed like my mind was constantly under the influence of some mind-altering drug, I used alcohol and dope to try to relax, which in turn screwed up my thinking even more. After a couple of months of using, I had become a scrawny, strung out mess. In desperation, I went to a doctor to see if he could help. I sat with this professional, telling him that I was stressed. The doctor was aware that I was not functioning normally. I think he suspected I was mentally ill and sent me to a psychiatrist. I actually felt my hopes rise at the thought that maybe this specialist could bring things back to normal. I hoped the medical professionals could release me from the prison of messed up emotions. The psychiatrist prescribed me rehypnol, explaining that more sleep could be my answer. I was under the constant influence of drugs, speed to help me function while awake, and a cocktail of downers to help me sleep. Coming down from a speed hit felt like completing a marathon run. Sleep would elude me no matter how hard I tried. If I did sleep, I would repeat the rhythm of waking up in the morning, smoking a couple of cones of dope, getting the munchies and eating, then looking around for a hit of speed. Late in the night would be the coming down, and another couple of bongs to relax. A couple of rehypnol pills would finish off the day and hopefully lead to drifting off to sleep. Being a speed freak was not a good career move. It became impossible to get up in time for work, and my brain was so buzzed I could hardly function when I was there. 
Unable to continue and unwilling to give up using speed, the job at Arnott's was abandoned. A bigger problem immediately arose. Speed is an expensive lifestyle, so I needed another source of income. Speed was the number one motivator in my life. Despite being on probation and afraid to go to jail, I began burgling houses. It wasn't long before I was burgling houses and businesses every week. Life became a rhythm of using, planning burglaries, doing burglaries, disposing of the proceeds and using some more. Over time, I grew in the ability to case out a house, eyeing off several houses, trying to figure out the routines of the occupants so they could be cleaned out when no one was home. There was one house the other side of town that I watched for some time. It always seemed quiet in the mornings. It was important to try and pick places that were safe to rob. I decided this was a good hit. Around 10am I approached the house and knocked on the door, prepared with a bogus story about needing directions. There was no answer at the door, so I figured I had a green light to slip around the side and force open a window with an old knife. I climbed through the window and crept around casing the house and making sure of a number of exit options before cleaning the place out. It was a nice home and all the rooms were quiet. I checked out the first bedroom and found nothing worth taking. Gently, I edged open the next bedroom door and jumped in surprise as I saw someone in the bed. The guy in bed woke up and began yelling. I'd suddenly stumbled into a nightmare. I turned and bolted for the door while the man struggled to pull on some pants. Fumbling with the door, I tackled the lock, finally getting it open and sprinted down the driveway. With the guy on my tail, I was still surprisingly fit from the army days and quickly put some distance between us. After a couple of turns, trying to give the guy the slip, I worked my way through some back streets and lanes to the home of a dealer I sometimes brought drugs from. It was a relief to be let in the door. Soon there were sirens all over the neighbourhood. I was able to get some clothes from the dealer mate and wait a while for the cops to give up and go home. I knew that was way too close for comfort and that I could not allow myself to get caught. After an hour or so, we couldn't hear any more sirens. I concluded that the coast was clear and left the dealer's house, beginning the long walk home. Unknown to me at the time, the guy I'd disturbed was a cop, and by the time I left the dealer's house, the whole area was swarming with police. Even though it was the middle of the day, the place I'd broken into was dark, so I had figured the cop couldn't get a good look at me. I had walked about a mile away from the cop's house, so I figured I would not be suspected if I just walked casually down the street. As I walked, a police car drove slowly past and stopped a little way up the street. My heart immediately began to race. I kept walking knowing I had to act like an everyday pedestrian, otherwise the cops would be onto me. I tried to look relaxed as I neared the car, but the cop called me over. Making a run for it would only have confirmed my guilt. I figured they didn't know me or what I'd done, so innocently I walked over. The cop asked for my name and informed me of a robbery that had happened in the area. The police officer in the car then invited me to accompany him to assist with the inquiries. I was shocked and my guts turned and I immediately knew I was stuck between the game I played and the reality swarming in on me. All I could think was, what can I do? I ended up reluctantly getting into the police car. We headed straight back to the house I had sprinted from earlier. I could not believe I was in this situation. The victim recognised me instantly. The cops cuffed me and bundled me back into the car. Back at the police station I was charged with breaking and entering and after more questioning I was charged with some other robberies. My scrawny appearance made it obvious to the cops that I was a user. Once caught, I knew there was no point of giving the cops a hard time, so I cooperated with them, but I was on probation, and now had a whole bunch of new charges facing me. 
It was clear to see that I was scared. Small-time crim trying to support a drug habit. I managed to be bailed without a hearing with a recommendation to see a legal aid lawyer. I found a lawyer who suggested that I submit to a drug and alcohol assessment to establish my need for rehabilitation. The lawyer convinced me that it could keep me out of jail. I was so scared of prison, I was prepared to do just about anything, so I quickly agreed. Within a couple of days, I checked into a rehab unit in Melbourne. I was only there for a couple of weeks, but two weeks without drugs was like two years. I hoped I had created a good impression. It was not long before the court appearance came up. The doctors at the rehab recommended that I be given a Section 13 bond. This amounts to a drug and alcohol-related suspended sentence. I was convinced and given a 20-month sentence suspended for two years. I decided I would try to keep the minimum requirements for the Section 13, but had no intention of being rehabilitated. One of my problems was that I was sharing a house with another addict. We were friendly guys and soon befriended the guys next door to us, Simon and his brother Matt. They quickly became like family, with Simon becoming one of my best mates. Simon worked for the bakery in town and usually finished work just as the speed freaks next door were waking up and looking for the first hit. Simon would go over to our place looking for fun to unwind after work. Although he had a job, Simon was a career criminal, trained by his alcoholic father. He pinched his first bike at eight years old with his dad's approval. Simon wasn't doing drugs, but he and I started out robbing houses together. I did it for the money to buy drugs, and Simon just for the money. At this time, my drug addiction continued to intensify. It takes a lot of money to supply a growing drug habit. The risks I took started to increase too. I became more daring in my burglaries, targeting wealthy homes and businesses. One night, Simon and I drove to a large factory we had been watching for a couple of weeks. Forcing open a roller door, we tore the place apart looking for money but found nothing. The place was full of tradesmen's tools, so we loaded the car with whatever we thought would move quickly and took them to Speedy, a trade teacher I knew from school. Speedy would write a shopping list of stuff he wanted on the blackboard of his classroom. Kids would pinch stuff and sell it to him. Speedy had lots of connections in the building trade. He agreed to take most of the stuff off our hands, enabling us to make a couple of thousand dollars for the night. Eventually, the regular dealer we used set up as a fence, which means he was a regular receiver and distributor of stolen goods. His criminal links in the bikey scene made it easy for him to move valuable things out of Ballarat, and even out of the state. In turn, he also gained intelligence about particular places that would be profitable to rob. He started setting up jobs for the now happy crime duo David and Simon. We were advised about when homes would be unoccupied, and what material he could dispose of quickly. He would take the proceeds of the jobs off our hands in exchange for drugs and cash. One night, Simon and I were sent to the home of a professional man who lived a little out of town in a secluded location. In a hired truck, we cleaned the place out, taking whatever we thought was of value. TVs, the sound system, furniture, art, even the washing machine. We scooped out the jewellery box and searched out all the money to be found. The fence took the lot. The illusion we would never be caught grew with every success. The burglaries grew bolder. We sometimes robbed two or three places in a single night, netting more and more stuff. So much merchandise meant we occasionally had trouble moving all the stolen goods quickly. We were forced to stash things for a few days or a couple of weeks until the fence was ready to take it. Sometimes the haul from the burglary would be taken out into the bush, the goods wrapped in a tarpaulin and covered with branches. After one very productive week, we had accumulated quite a cash out in the bush. 
The stash place was miles away from anywhere, so there was little chance of being seen visiting the site or unloading the goods. The fence was struggling to keep up with us, so we had items from a number of robberies stored there. Simon and I were headed out there late one afternoon after a very fruitful visit to a wealthy home on the outskirts of town. The car was loaded with electrical goods, cameras and jewellery. As we slowly made our way along the rough bush track that wound its way between the trees, I turned and grinned at Simon. He grinned back. It all seemed too easy, if the cops only knew. Driving the car along the long country road, it felt like everything was being jolted around by the kilometres of potholes. Simon stopped the car beside a rather thick little patch of scrub, scrub we had cut a couple of days before and piled on top of the tarpaulin. Like two mates at a barbecue, we got out of the car and began to clear some of the branches. Suddenly, there was a shout. It was one of those moments I'd imagined happening, but had never anticipated how I'd feel hearing the words for real. Police! Freeze! Put your hands in the air! Don't turn around! The cop screamed at the top of his lungs, and in half a second there were police all over the two of us, wrenching our arms behind our backs and forcing us to the ground. There was no time to even consider making a break for it, did not feel real and it was very scary. Hands cuffed behind our backs with the burly copper either side, we were dragged to our feet. A cop snatched the keys from the ignition and opened the boot of the car. It was packed with the proceeds of last night's adventure. Where'd you get this stuff? He demanded. It's mine, Simon replied. I remember looking at the cop whose snarling face demanded an answer even without words. It's his, I shrugged. The cops pulled back the tarp to reveal the collection of merchandise beneath. Where'd you get this? Never seen it before. What are you doing out here? Looking for rabbits? The police were not impressed with the game. We were both shoved towards separate police cars and bundled into the back seats. It was a silent drive back to the station in Ballarat. We'd been caught with thousands of dollars worth of stuff and I was already facing a bunch of charges for burglary. I knew I was going to jail. Back at the station, we were taken to separate rooms and interviewed. There was nothing I could say that would help my case, so I refused to answer questions. After repeating no comment to the cops' questions, I was charged with several burglaries. Because I had turned up for all my previous court dates, bail was granted. A few days later, the cops turned up with a search warrant at the home of my cousin Rick. They turned the place upside down while Rick watched. There were no stolen goods or drugs to be found but they uncovered Rick's cache of crossbows, machetes and other weapons. Rick was charged with unlawful possession of restricted weapons and released on bail. Rick told me about his arrest and charges. With a number of other convictions against his name already, Rick was certain to do time. I cast my mind back to the terrifying couple of days on remand in Melbourne. We were both still scared stiff of going back to prison. Certified, the autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com.